0: something ugly happened today. Once again, this amounts to another betrayal of the interest of African Americans. Uh, I know that Clarence Thomas and company would disagree with that, uh, but we have a different view about what the interests of African Americans may be. Welcome to a special edition of Uncommon Law, affirmative
1: action in college admissions as we know it, has fallen.
2: Tonight, the Supreme Court's landmark ruling on affirmative action on college campuses. The court strikes down programs at Harvard and the University of North Carolina. The Supreme Court ruled race that race be can be no longer be considered a factor in admission to higher education. In a
1: 6-3 ruling along ideological lines, the divided Supreme Court struck down the admissions programs of Harvard and the University of North Carolina, which both used race as a factor in their admissions process. Today. An uncommon law. We'll learn how the court came to its decision. And did the majority leave the door open for colleges to still consider race in some circumstances? We'll learn why some supporters of affirmative action still have a glimmer of hope. More than 60 years ago, President Lyndon Johnson spoke at the commencement of Howard University one of the oldest black universities in the country, and he made what has come to be a famous analogy.
0: You do not take a person who for years has been hobbled by chains and liberate him, bringing up to the starting line of a race, and then say, you are free to compete with all the others, and still justly believe that you have been completely fair.
1: The original goal of affirmative action was not just to treat everyone equally but to go further than that to affirmatively help those who had faced oppression but that reasoning didn't hold up for long when the supreme court first looked at the use of affirmative action at the uc davis medical school in the late 1970s a slim majority of the court rejected that reasoning if you want to learn more about the history of how the court has looked at affirmative action over the decades Listen to the last season of Uncommon Law. It walks through all the cases, all the reasoning. Suffice it to say, remedying past discrimination wasn't a good enough reason to overcome the court's interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. But that case, and all the cases that followed, allowed affirmative action for another reason. Diversity. This week's case walks all of that back. Writing for the majority, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote that the admissions policies of Harvard and UNC fall short of what is required by the Equal Protection Clause. The Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment says that no person shall be denied equal protection of the laws. This has been read to mean that the government can't treat people differently because of their race. That's a fundamental right. And when a fundamental right is at stake, That triggers what lawyers call strict scrutiny.
3: So strict scrutiny review begins from the idea that the action of the government or the statute is presumptively unconstitutional. That's what strict scrutiny review means.
1: This is Michelle Adams, a law professor at the University of Michigan, who we heard from in our earlier episodes.
3: It means that there's a heavy burden of justification that's put on the government to justify the action because the court begins with the notion that, in fact, what the government has done is unconstitutional.
1: And to pass strict scrutiny. What you're doing needs to be narrowly tailored to achieve a compelling governmental interest. The court found that the Harvard and UNC programs do not pass that high level of judicial scrutiny that's required when you treat people differently based on race. The court said that all the benefits that come from diversity may be commendable, but they're not compelling because diversity is too amorphous, too
3: squishy a concept to be a good justification. And all this stuff about leadership and integration being important for democracy and all these other kinds of things, that's not measurable. That's not concrete. That's abstract. And because it's not amenable to judicial measurement, it's not an appropriate justification. So the first news out of the case is that, to the extent that universities can continue to try to achieve racially diverse classes, the broadest understanding of that has been has been pushed aside by this court.
1: Harvard and UNC had offered several justifications for their programs, all of which they purported to be compelling. Better educating their students through diversity, promoting the robust exchange of ideas, cross-racial understanding... The court agreed that those goals are commendable, but they're not coherent enough, the court said, to pass the high bar of strict scrutiny. How is a court to know, John Roberts asked, whether leaders have been adequately trained, whether the exchange of ideas is robust, or whether new knowledge is being developed? Even if these goals could somehow be measured, moreover, how is a court to know when they have been reached, And when
3: the perilous remedy of racial preferences may cease. O'Connor thought that that was measurable, but the reason she thought it was measurable is because, in part, she was deferring to the university on that first prong of strict scrutiny, saying if the university thinks it's important to the educational mission to admit students of color and to use race as a factor to get these things We're going to defer to them because they are better situated than we are to make that call. And that's exactly the thing the court rejects today in the Harvard-UNC cases. It basically says, we just don't know what that means, and we're not deferring to the university on what it means or not.
1: And that's not all. These college admissions programs that take race into account to build a diverse class, they don't have a logical endpoint, the court said. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor famously said that the court expects that 25 years from now, from
3: now the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary to further the interests that we approve today.
1: But it's been 20 years, the court wrote, and no end is in sight. The opinion cited this exchange between Justice Neil Gorsuch and Harvard attorney Seth Waxman.
4: When does Harvard anticipate? Uh, this will end. Uh, yep. Grutter spoke of it being a 25-year window, as you're well aware. Harvard could tomorrow do without federal funds and continue to discriminate on the basis of race, however it pleased. Um, I'm sure that would be a hardship. What is Harvard's view on how long this will take?
2: Harvard does not currently, based on its data, expect that in 2028 it will have been able to use A only race neutral alternative. So so, So what this, but what I do agree with, if
4: I I may. I'm, I'm just, I'm just, just, it's a real simple question. If Harvard doesn't have an answer, that's fine. But does Harvard have some view about when?
2: Harvard, yes. Harvard's view about when doesn't have a date on it.
1: Not only that, the majority said, the Equal Protection Clause commands that race may never be used as a negative. The schools denied that an applicant's race ever works against them, but the majority didn't buy that reasoning. College admissions are zero-sum, Roberts wrote. A benefit provided to some applicants, but not to others, necessarily advantages the former group at the expense of the latter. We have never permitted admissions programs to work in that way, the majority wrote, and we will not do so today.
0: I was not surprised. I expected them to do what they did. The question was how far they were going to go.
1: This is Ted Shaw, law professor at UNC and former president of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund.
0: I think this Supreme Court was built for this moment as they were built for overturning Roe v.ersus Wade. And so this didn't surprise me. In the
1: 1978 Bakke case four justices would have held that remedying past societal discrimination was a compelling state interest that would justify the use of race. In the current case, the three dissenting justices, Sonia Sotomayor, Elena Kagan, and Ketanji Brown-Jackson, made the same argument. Sotomayor wrote that today, this court rolls back decades of progress, cementing a superficial rule of colorblindness as a constitutional principle in an endemically segregated society where race has always mattered and continues to matter. Jackson wrote, with let-them-eat-cake obliviousness, today the majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by legal fiat. But deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life
0: that's right i wish i could have articulated that in the way she did but i certainly think it's a powerful way of describing what the court did in the decision that it announced today you know i keep thinking about the go back to the 25 years thing and we think about what's happened in those 25 years even specifically what's happened in the last few years, you know, the lives that have been taken of African-Americans, the Black Lives Matter movement, all of the racial discord and violence, the Charleston church massacre, and I can go on and on. The notion that we've reached some nirvana, uh, colorblindness, you know it's it's absurd uh, but the courts ready to move on anyway the idea that colleges and universities undertake some effort to include black and brown people particularly african americans that's so modest it is so stingy small an effort to try to balance things out a little bit to equalize the playing table, but apparently it's too much.
4: I'm very worried.
1: This is outgoing Columbia University President Lee Bollinger. I spoke with him last fall, just before these cases were argued at the Supreme Court, and I asked him if, given the makeup of this court and the proliferation of state referendums banning the use of race, he was worried about the future of diversity in American colleges and the future of racial justice.
4: I mean, I think we've made great, great strides in trying to integrate American society. And higher education is a big part of it. And it would be a tragedy if that can no longer continue. And it wouldn't just be higher education because the radiating effects of a holding that consideration of race and ethnicity is unconstitutional, that in itself would would strike a blow to the efforts to integrate the society across the whole nation. So, yes, I, I would be incredibly worried. I don't, uh, I think what we see where it has been abandoned or prohibited, as in California and Michigan and some other places, it's really tragic. And everybody in those institutions feels it. So um, things change slowly when you reverse a principle of 50 years, but they would change dramatically over the next 50 years and we would be a society that uh, had really, I don't wanna say failed, but really turned its back significantly on trying to address the problems the Brown versus Board of Education launched us on trying to deal with.
1: And yet, for supporters of affirmative action, all might not be lost. When we return, we'll look at the paragraph in the majority opinion that leaves open the door for colleges to consider how the race of an applicant affected their life. Plus, we'll hear from Ed Bloom on whether he'd be opposed to university efforts to take into account the socioeconomic status of an applicant as they craft their incoming classes. Stick around.
3: Bloomberg Law is the only comprehensive legal research and technology platform to provide unlimited access and continuous product enhancements at no additional cost. Access best-in-class state and federal dockets coverage We bring you daily reporting of major legal and regulatory developments, along with expert insights. That's the Bloomberg Law Difference.
1: In the majority opinion, after proclaiming that the court would not let colleges use race the way they have been, Chief Justice John Roberts adds a paragraph that perhaps gives supporters of affirmative action some unexpected hope. Nothing in this opinion, he wrote, should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. The key, wrote Roberts, is that a school can't give a student any extra points in the admissions process because of his or her race, but they can give points because of that student's courage and determination in overcoming racial discrimination. Or if a student says their heritage or culture motivated them to assume a leadership role, a school could give them points, not because of their racial heritage, but because of that student's unique ability to contribute to the university. In other words, Roberts wrote, the student must be treated, quote, based on his or her experiences as an individual, not on the basis of race.
3: Basically, this court says you can't use race explicitly. Well, the next question is, well, could you use some sort of facially race neutral mechanism with the intent to achieve the same thing? That's the next level uh, that we're going to get to. That's the next question. And the reason why it matters that Roberts wrote this as opposed to, say, someone like Thomas is that Roberts left open the possibility that schools can seek to achieve that interest. They simply can't use race explicitly to get it. I think Justice Thomas, if he had written this case, would have said you can't use race, you can't even think about it. So
1: Roberts left open the possibility that universities can seek to achieve a diverse class where diversity might include racial diversity as long as they don't use race to
3: achieve that diversity? Yes. And in fact, uh, this is in the Sotomayor opinion. It's on page 49 of her dissent. To be clear, today's decision leaves intact holistic college admissions and recruitment efforts that seek to enroll diverse classes without using racial classifications. That's the key sentence that uh, I think your listeners are going to want to focus on and where there's going to be action, right? I think Sotomayor is correct. Schools can seek to achieve racially diverse classes, as long as the way that they are going about it is not expressly using race today. I'm not talking about tomorrow. I'm not talking about next week. I'm not talking about next term. But Sotomayor, is. I think that's correct. I think that's a correct reading of the majority opinion. And that's why I think you might see some commentators saying it's not as bad as it could have been.
1: I take your point about what Sotomayor says, and I counter what John Roberts says on page 39, a dissenting opinion is generally not the best source of legal advice on how to comply with the majority opinion. Mm-hmm. Your reading seems to be hopeful, optimistic. <laughs> I,
3: You know, one question is whether I'm a natural optimist, a natural pessimist or, or something in between. And I, you know, I think it depends on which of my friends you ask. And <laughs> I I don't know that I'm optimistic. I think, think, look, let me step back for a second and say, just from a global perspective, I think this is a disaster. What you really have in these cases is two competing narratives of reality and two competing narratives of history that are radically different. And those narratives, I think, mirror very much the um, ways in which our country is currently polarized. You've got one narrative that says that racial discrimination is largely a thing of the past, um, that the problem with racial discrimination was really about racial classification schemes. That was the beginning and the end of the problem, right? And that once the government stopped classifying on the basis of race, discrimination ended, right? And then you've got another uh, narrative that says that the real problem was white supremacy and that racial subordination continues And that not only are the effects of the past still being felt today, but the the past is alive and with us. And that has never been remediated. And it continues in in every aspect of American life. And it's those two views that are sort of warring in this decision. And it's 6-3 on that. It's 6-3 on that.
1: So are colleges now in a position after this opinion where they can look at socioeconomic status, They can look at zip codes if they're not specifically looking at race, but everyone sort of knows it's a proxy for race. Is that
3: allowed? I think the answer to that is yes. I think the answer to that also is that there's going to be follow-on litigation the day after tomorrow about it. I don't think this case decides that. And I, I, I want to be very, very clear. I don't think this case says, no, you can't do that. Right? And so... To the extent that, that schools still are seeking to achieve racially diverse classes, they can use facially race-neutral measures to achieve that until the court says otherwise. There will be litigation on that.
2: Uh, my name is Edward Bloom. I am the founder and president of Students for Fear Admissions. Ed Bloom, who spearheaded
1: this litigation, finding plaintiffs and shepherding it all the way to the Supreme Court,
2: gave a brief press conference after the opinion was announced. Beginning today, America's colleges and universities have a legal and moral obligation to strictly abide by the Supreme Court's opinion. These obligations compel the removal of all racial and ethnic classification boxes from undergraduate and postgraduate application forms, and he made it clear
1: that Students for Fair Admissions would be monitoring universities to ensure
2: they are complying with the decision. We will be monitoring uh, direct proxies for race, and if we feel that uh, a college or university is using something that basically mirrors racial classifications, then that's something that we would that we would object to. We remain vigilant and intend to initiate litigation should universities defiantly flout this clear ruling and the dictates of Title VI and the Equal Protection Clause. But when I spoke with Bloom at his home in Maine last
1: fall, he seemed to be more circumspect. I asked him specifically about whether he might be okay with a college using socioeconomic factors and admissions, giving more weight to people from poor communities.
2: So here's what we advocated in court. We said that if colleges and universities end the use of race and ethnicity and instead lower the bar a little bit for kids who have come from disadvantaged backgrounds, kids who attended... High schools where there really weren't very many AP, if any, AP classes offered. Kids who come from single parent households. Kids who come from households where family income is modest at best. Lower the bar for those kids a little bit. And then you'll see truly individualized diversity come to these college campuses.
1: So, but it's still getting at race. Using socioeconomic status as a way to get at this is still getting at the idea of helping certain races.
2: No, it's not. I don't believe that at all.
1: What are you talking about? Most most poor inner city black kids? Hey,
2: there's a a ton of of kids from rural Wisconsin, a ton of kids from rural Kentucky that are white, that come from disadvantaged backgrounds. Asian-American kids, the kids that we've uh, uh, represented at Students for Fair Admissions, those kids aren't the kids of doctors and lawyers and, and investment bankers. They're the, they're the kids of, of housekeepers and Chinese restaurant staff. They come from very modest backgrounds. Cast a net in the direction of all kids who have come from disadvantaged backgrounds, and you will achieve this kind of unique, individualized diversity that colleges claim they're seeking. You know, I grew up in a very modest, uh, financially modest household. My father was a shoe salesman. Um, Two years before my mother passed away at age 77, she had a job. She worked the candy counter at Sears in Pompano Beach, Florida. Um, so, financially, I did not really grow up in a, in a financially um, well-to-do household. What does that mean in the scope of all of this? It means that I understand, uh, perhaps more than my contemporaries at my age, that uh, there are those who come from extremely modest or impoverished uh, economic backgrounds, and instead of Instead of looking at them through a racial lens, let's look at them and help them out a little bit through a socioeconomic lens.
1: College administrators have been preparing for this decision. They knew it was coming. They'll try to maintain a diverse student body while also trying to comply with the ruling, but no one's quite sure what will happen or how much weight they can give admissions essays that talk about race, or whether attempts to use socioeconomic proxies for race will trigger another Ed Bloom lawsuit.
5: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen.
1: About the only thing that is certain? The Asian Americans, represented by Students for Fair Admissions, believe that this decision shows that the American dream is alive and well.
5: My name is Calvin Yang, and I am a member of Students for Fair Admissions. For so long, Asian Americans have strived for acceptance and recognition. Today's decision marks the promise of a new beginning, a resurgence of the principles of the American dream. Today's victory transcends far beyond those of us sitting in this room today. It belongs to thousands of sleepless high schoolers applying to colleges. It belongs to the overachieving son of a recently unemployed West Virginia coal miner. It belongs to those with the last names of Smith or Lee, Chen or Gonzalez. It belongs to all of us who deserved a chance, but can now rejoice over the fact that at least our kids can be judged based on their achievements and merits alone. Thank you.
1: Uncommon Law was written and produced by me, Matthew Schwartz. I also did the sound design and mixing for this episode. My editor is Josh Block, who is the executive producer for video and podcasts here at Bloomberg Industry Group. If you haven't heard the last season of Uncommon Law, it's all about these affirmative action cases and how the court has thought about it up through the ages. And it includes a 20-minute heart-to-heart with Ed Bloom. The American Bar Association awarded our podcast its Silver Gavel Award for Media and the Arts, the highest honor that you can get in legal journalism. So if you're interested in this topic and want to learn more, I highly recommend you check it out. If you've enjoyed Uncommon Law, please share it with a friend. And it would mean so much to me if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps spread the word. And an additional thank you to Tom Taylor, Cheska Antonelli, and Lisa Hallam. See you next time.